1: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Nice to be back. Nice to have you back. What's up, you guys? Well, I got something interesting today. And it's kind of funny because it's similar to a couple of other things that I've been talking about. Um, It, it just sort of like... <clears throat> it became a little bit of a theme it wasn't planned uh what i mean is i started talking about um Carl Jung's red book the last couple of weeks and what what we're doing is we're talking about we're talking about these like fantasy images and dreamlike images that Carl Jung is having and trying to explain them and understand them and um and it sounds in many ways it sounds like what people what people talk about from psychedelic experience or mystic experience of certain kinds, and the reason I like it so much coming from Carl Jung is because Carl Jung is such a respected academic, or at least, at least in his in his time he was, and it's not totally true because we talked we talked about how Carl Jung's um his his talk about archetypes and the collective unconscious got him shunned to some degree by hard nosed empiricists, and that's not. Untrue today, and it wasn't untrue in the 1800s when he was, you know, when he was, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the turn of the century when he was writing. So uh, it's not entirely true, but but the idea though is a a respected academic who founded a discipline, this analytic psychology, this dream interpretations, and all, you know, and that and it sounds you know fringy, but it's not. It's like you know, sitting back on a couch and talking to your therapist and talking through your problems—that was invented by Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud. Um, and that type of psychology has changed and evolved since then. And people like to pretend like it doesn't have its origins in this mystical guy, Carl Jung, but it does. You know, he was a legitimate, well-respected academic, the founder of a whole new discipline of science. You know, that he was a big deal. And he said a lot of strange things, you know, that he published in books that he intended on people to, to read and, and, to, and to hear and to know. Um, and, but what he said in the Red Book was beyond that, man. It was a step beyond that. It was like trying to, it was, it's like reading somebody's dream, you know, who wrote down their dream. Or trying to talk to somebody who had a crazy mystic experience and visual, you know, hallucinations or whatever. And trying to explain it to you. Um, That ineffable quality that mystic experience has. And it all sounds very hippy-dippy, as I like to say. Um, But what's interesting to me is that it comes from such a respected, scientifically-minded academic as Carl Jung. And And I ask myself, why does that appeal to me so much? And I think it's because I've had those types of experiences, things that you have difficult difficulty explaining, communicating, understanding, and certainly have difficulty talking about. And when you do, you sound crazy or hippy-dippy or something. And you give people an excuse to brush it off, to pay you no mind, to not take your ideas seriously. And there's this egging feeling like you write that stuff off at your peril. It is the most important thing to be, to be, um, taking seriously. And so, if somebody like Carl Jung can do it, it just seems like it gives it more credence. It gives the mystic experience more credence. It's like when you hear people talk about, uh, this is a weird analogy, but you hear people talk about um, Buzz Aldrin um, having experiences of UFOs in space or, you know, seeing unexplainable things in space, and people take that more seriously when Buzz Aldrin says it because he was an astronaut because he was one of the first men you know um, uh, on the moon. We take it way more seriously when Buzz Aldrin says it than when some crazy guy on the internet says it and I think that's the angle here so it started it started you might say it started with Carl Jung's Red book, but it, it didn't if you guys remember some episodes in the in the past where we tried to explain what mystic ex- experience was like we read examples of people's descriptions and we try to get a handle on what they are, what they're like, what they mean, um, that kind of thing that, that maybe was where it started. But you know, again, if I'm talking about St. Paul or Mohammed or, you know, some far distant, you know, philosopher from the ancient past who had an experience like this, it's kind of like with the crazy guy on the internet talking about UFOs. People write that off because, you know, Oh, if, you know, if, um, Heraclitus said it, you know, that was so long ago, we can't take him seriously. And if uh, so-and-so said it, you know, th- there's just always a reason to not take this seriously. So I'm, I guess the question is, does that make the argument stronger when it comes from the, ma- the mouth of Carl Jung? Uh, another one that I came upon along these same lines, the one that we're going to talk about today, was A vision. By a guy named Sir Humphrey Davy. Sir Humphrey Davy, I didn't really know about. Uh, shame on me. I read about him in uh, Doctor Shosted Hughes' book, Modes of Sentience, and um, I went out and, went out and bought a copy of uh, the guy's last book that he wrote, basically on his dying, on his deathbed. Um, and he said some crazy shit. Not not unlike Carl Jung, whose red book was published after he died. Sir Humphrey Davy wrote this book and it's subtitled is the last days of a philosopher and that's literally what it was it was his it was his last words while he was dying that he wrote down because he didn't want to die and let this stuff go unsaid it was so important to him he's like look i i couldn't have said this any other time now the consequences be damned i'm a dying man i'm going to tell you this shit i'm going to tell the world this thing that needs to be said that i've been keeping to myself all these years and guess what it's trippy it's so trippy you're not going to believe it and the idea here again is sir humphrey davy you know if you didn't catch that he's a knight sir humphrey davy and he was a scientist a celebrated scientist um he's an important character, maybe even more important and more respected in many ways than someone like Carl Jung. So, well, what does that mean? That means I'm going to bring to you guys another story from the lips of Sir Humphrey Davy, like what we've been talking about in the Red Book, and it's going to blow the top off of your head. I certainly hope it will. I told you there's a theme here, and I want to tell you one other. I won't get into it too much because I want to save it for another episode. But um, the other day, not long ago, I started seeing things online about Bicycle Day. Bicycle Day. Like it's a holiday I didn't know about. Bicycle Day. Um, turned out I was only seeing it referenced from people in the UK when I decided to look at what the hell Bicycle Day was. It turned out that it is, I guess, it's sort of a joke, but it's not. It's a day of remembrance. Um, of, um, well, (laughs) remembering when LSD was invented, when it was first synthesized by a guy named Albert Hoffman, pretty sure that's the guy. And he developed, uh, this chemical in his lab and he got some spilled all over his hands. I think it was absorbed through his skin and he started feeling not so good as you can imagine and needed to go home. So he couldn't drive. He he had his laboratory assistant hopped on a bike, and he took his bicycle home. And on the way home, he had the very first LSD trip that's ever happened. You know, a man made LSD trip, and the story he tells about that trip is also staggering and mystical. And I want to talk to you about that too, because Albert Albert Hoffman was a respected scientist. So this is the theme here, you guys. I want to try to bring to you this mystical vision, this you know, mystic experience, this strange psychedelic reality that some people claim to experience and to see. I have personally experienced it myself and have you know justifiable reasons to bring this to you. So strap in, guys. This is what we're going to talk about today, Sir Humphrey Davy. What I want to do first is I want to read the preface, a little a little paragraph from the preface of the book, uh, Last Days of... It's called Consolations in Travel or The Last Days of a Philosopher. I like The Last Days of, of a Philosopher better. I think that's uh, more to the point. But the lady that wrote the pre- preface of the book, she references, I think, some other book. I, I don't know yet, but it's called um, Salmania, I think. And it go, the, the I'll just read it to you. It goes like this. Salmaniyah was written during the time of a partial recovery from a long and dangerous illness. The present work was composed immediately after under the same unfavorable and painful circumstances and at a period when the constitution of the author suffered from new attacks. He has derived some pleasure and some consolation when most other sources of consolation and pleasure were closed to him. From this exercise of his mind and he ventures to hope that these hours of sickness may not be altogether unprofitable to persons in perfect health. this was published in Rome, February of 1829. So let's fast, let's rewind the clocks back to 1829. The story we're going to read happened sometime prior to 1829. This is right around the time Sir Humphrey Davy died. So I wanted to read that for you just to let you know that he literally was dying. Um, he was sick. He was in pain. And when he, f- when he finished the book, he wasn't even able to write it himself. Like towards the end, he, he was just dictating what was going into this book. So when I say the last days of a philosopher, I, I mean that in the most literal sense. The, this were, this, these were, were Humphrey Davies' dying days and his dying words. I just want that to sink in for a second. So what we're about to read is Humphrey Davies' dying words. Deathbed confession. Got to get it off your chest before it's too late. What's the most important thing you have to say that you've never said that you need to get off your chest before you die? So wrap your brain around what kind of importance that must be and then strap in for what we're about to read because it's good. Anybody who might be interested in this book, by the way, Consolations: The Last Days of a Philosopher, you can get it for free. Just go online to gutenberg.org. You can read it for free right there. You don't even have to buy it. Um, just wanted to drop that in as well. And then I'm going to give you a little bit of my, my intro before we get into the book. So here we go. Sir Humphrey Davy was born in 1778. Died in 1829. Remember, that's the date on that preface that I just read to you. A celebrated chemist, he discovered potassium and sodium, as well as other compounds. He invented the Davy Lamp, which allowed miners to see underground safely for the first time. And he's actually known, he's, he's mostly remembered for that, the Davy Lamp. It was an invention, you know, but something that allowed these mi- these miners to do this very dangerous job and see underground safely, which had never been done before. It was a revolutionary technology, so he's known for that. But he also experimented with electricity in the early days. He founded the Zoological Society of London, you know, so he's got other interests and, and you know, he's making a mark in other places. Not to mention... He was the president of the Royal Society. That is a big deal, you guys. Um, That's that's an academic society in England that's been around for a very long time. A former president of the Royal Society, you might know the guy, Isaac Newton. Yeah, maybe you know him. So Humphrey Davy was the president of the Royal Society as well and was one of only two scientists ever to be knighted. Sir Humphrey Davy. Who was the other one? Sir Isaac Newton, that's the caliber of guy we're talking about. No schlub, you guys. He was infamous in his time. But did you know he was also a pioneer in the study of altered states of consciousness? Did you know that? What a renaissance man. Did you know like William James, he experimented with nitrous oxide? He was perhaps the greatest empirical mind the greatest scientist to ever venture into psychedelic reality. He was, as Dr. Schersted-Hughes called him, the first scientific psychonaut. So that, that's what you're getting here, guys, the first scientific psychonaut. What we were getting ready to explore together, it took me by surprise, to say the least. We are about to peek into Davy's dying words the things he needed to say before he could no longer say them. The things he kept all to himself his whole life, but needed now to confess before it was too late. Why did he keep silent for so long? If these things are of such importance, why did he wait till his dying days to reveal them? Fear, fear. I think that's a fair bet. He was afraid to say what we're about to read together, but what's there to be afraid of? Well, what we are about to read is absolutely amazing and fully crazy. It is the account of Davy's first mystic experience. And it reads like Dante's trip through hell in heaven, if you guys know the Divine Comedy, or, or Mohammed's um, vision of um, uh, traveling to heaven, or and from the Quran, or even um, Milton's Paradise Lost, if you guys have read that. This is how it reads, you know? It is Davy's encounter with spirits and angels and demons, but not at all what you think. Davy's spirits are alive, like you and I. They represent our own potential, perhaps, one day in the far-fung future. The book begins exactly like a platonic dialogue. So if you remember the dialogues that we read from Plato, this is a story of Sir Humphrey Davy in his younger years. So the scene is Davy is a younger man and a group of his friends and they're visiting Rome and they went to go see the Colosseum. And it's just a bunch of like 20 year old guys, well to do guys, very smart guys walking around the Colosseum, the ruins of ancient Rome together in the evening. Okay. And they marveled at the building and they discussed the rise and fall of Rome they argued about the flow of history and its repeating cycles, about the fate of civilization and its beginnings. After some time, his friends depart and they leave Davy to himself to reflect beneath the moonlight in the company of the great Colosseum. It is at this point in solitude and deep reflection that Davy enters a visionary state. and That brings us to the book. This first section, I'm going to call the vision. All right, quote number one. When I was left alone, I seated myself in the moonshine. And this is Davy speaking out loud. Time, which purifies and sanctifies the mind, destroys and brings into utter decay the body. And even in nature, its influences seem always degrading. She is represented by the poets as eternal in her youth. But amongst these ruins, she appears to me eternal in her age. I had scarcely concluded the sentence when my reverie became deeper. The ruins surrounding me appeared to vanish. The light of the moon became more intense. And the orb itself seemed to expand in a flood of splendor. Whew. Okay, so here it comes. It's coming on. Davy's feeling this vision coming on. He says, The most melodious sound filled my ears, softer, yet at the same time deeper and fuller than I had ever heard. It appeared to me that I had entered a new state of existence. I was so perfectly lost in the new sensation that I had no recollections and no perceptions of identity. All right, so let me just pause for a second. So this scene's opening up, and Davey's sitting there thinking really deeply about this philosophical conversation he's having with his buddies, and he's sitting there thinking and, and, and about these deep topics. And something happens to him. Something, something like a wave rushes over him, and he feels strange, and he, he you know, his senses seem altered, you know. And he says that the sun, excuse me, the moon. The brightness of that moon just sort of like shines on him, and he just becomes overwhelmed by the the light of the moon and the the sound in his ears and all this, and he says he feels like he's entered a new state of existence, you know like something really deeply powerful is happening to him and The last sentence I think is the most telling because because again, the story we're reading here is not about Davy breathing nitrous oxide and having trippy experiences. Supposedly this is Davy in a, in a completely healthy state sitting out in front of the Coliseum and, and falling into this experience. So it's not drug induced, at least according to Davy. But what he says is I was so perfectly lost in the new sensation that I had no recollections and no perceptions of identity. So what does that mean? So it means he didn't have memories of his past or of, of his self. He didn't know who he was. It wasn't important. When he, when he moved into this new state of existence, his identity, his individuality was washed away. And anybody who's ever had a mystic experience or a deeply psychedelic, powerful psychedelic experience, you know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about something we call ego death. Or I, would, I might call the one with the universe experience. It's where your identity grows to encompass the identity of everything else. And that's how your identity gets lost. It's not that it's not that it's really an ego death, you know, and I take issue with that word a little bit, but it gets to the point. It's not that your self has died. It's that your, your self has been washed away in an ocean of selves. You know, you can't find yourself anymore because you're all selves. That's the kind of feeling that he's talking about when he says he entered a new state of existence. Now, would you say that's a mystic experience? Would you say it's something like a psychedelic experience? Absolutely. So let's push on. He said, On a sudden, the music ceased, and I heard a low but extremely distinct voice, which appeared to issue from the center of it. So this is going to be a voice that he's hearing, a disembodied voice speaking to him, and it goes like this. You... Like all your brethren said the voice are entirely ignorant of everything belonging to yourself, the world you inhabit, your future destinies, and the scheme of the universe, and yet you have the folly to believe you are acquainted with the past, the present, and the future so that so that's interesting, so while Davy is experiencing this one with the universe experience and getting washed away into this mystic experience. He hears a voice, you know, a disembodied voice that tells him he's ignorant, doesn't, doesn't know anything that he thinks he knows. And I love that. You know, it reminds me of, reminds me of Socrates, you know, who, who said he spoke to his inner voice. He called his daemon. And what did his inner voice do? Exactly what Davy's voice, his voice is telling Davy to do. It's telling him he doesn't know what he thinks he knows. It's telling him that ignorance is his place. And he's, coming from this moment where he, had, he was talking to his buddies about the fate of the Roman Empire and how they went wrong and why, you know, they were destined to fail and, you know, the greatness that was Rome is gone and all that sort of thing. And they spoke as though they analyzed the whole thing and figured it all out and had the secrets of, you know, how to maintain civilization. And that's how they were talking to one another. And the spirit comes up and says, you don't know shit, Davey. You think you do. But you don't. So that's interesting. I think it's interesting that the voice challenges Davy's certainty, you know, his, his supposed earthly wisdom. And you might ask why that's so interesting. The reason is that what psychedelic and mystic experience does is exactly that. It's the consequence of mystic experience to question foundational realities. You have a mystic experience. You're going to question things you've never questioned before, like: Is infinity real? Is that a real thing? Is reality an illusion of some kind? Is the material world not what it seems to be? Does time exist? Does space exist? You know, these are the kind of questions that you'll get hung up on coming out of a mystic experience. They will make you question the most fun foundational things that you never thought to question. Because they show you a possibility that you never could have anticipated. And it makes you want to question foundational assumptions, you know? Like, what, am I, what have I been assuming all this time that's wrong? Because I've been assuming all this time reality is a certain way. And now I have this mystic experience and realize it's, it can be vastly different than that. So what else am I wrong about? That's what mystic experience will bring you to. And that's what the voice has done to Davy. Are you so sure you know about the history of Rome? Are you so sure you know about the about the uh, the hearts of men that you can that you can make claims about the about the reasons and and uh, and, and all that? <laughs> and the voice that says, "No, you you know you, you're going to come to terms with the fact that you don't know what you think you know. That you aren't wise like you think you are. So where does it go from there? Here we go." So the voice continues. He says, I am an intelligence somewhat superior to you, though there are millions of beings as much above me in power and in intellect as man's is above the weakest reptile that crawls beneath his feet. Yet something I can teach you. Yield your mind wholly to the influence which I shall exert upon it, and you shall be undeceived in your views of the history of the world and of the system you inhabit. Okay, it's definitely an invitation, and it's kind of scary to me actually to read that invitation. It's like uh, this disembodied voice saying that to you. Imagine that, and you and you, <laughs> the position that puts you in. He, you know, it's like um, it's like a spirit offering you something valuable. You know, he said, "You shall be undeceived in your views of history." That's what Davy wants. You know, he wants wisdom. He wants to know, and that's what he's being offered here. But that's not the weirdest part of this paragraph, by a long shot. The weirdest part is this beginning part, where the disembodied voice tells Davy, I am an intelligence somewhat superior to you, though there are millions of beings above me. So he's basically saying, look, I'm something like a supernatural being to you, but I'm not a supernatural being. And there are way more supernatural beings above me that you can that you can't even imagine you couldn't have imagined me a second ago, and it's like you know in similar stories you know if you read a story like this about from a holy book you know about somebody getting a vision or an angel speaks to them takes them to heaven or something like that um it's not what you get i mean the person the the power that's taking that's speaking to the human being and taking them on a journey is usually something like the mouthpiece of God or God itself or some disembodied, you know, image of God's power, like a burning bush, you know, something like that. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm something like you. I'm an intelligent creature, something like you, Davy. But I'm a little bit more superior than you on the hierarchy. You know, but there are people, there are beings even more superior than me. And so that's interesting. It's like telling Davy something about this supernatural world or this invisible world, and it's something more like the world of a human being than you would expect it to be. At least I more than I expected it to be. So this is this is one of the first parts that's throwing me. So when he's saying that that you know I'm a supernatural being, but there's many other types, and they're even more superior than me, it makes me think of like. Spiritual hierarchies, you know, the Bible uses words for like different types of angels that exist. If you guys don't know, they call them powers and principalities. They call them seraphim and cherubim, and there are different types of angels on this hierarchy—archangels, and you know, you know what I mean, like different levels of supernatural creature. And you see the same thing in in Dante. You know, if you read the Divine Comedy, when he, when Virgil takes Dante down into hell, and he sees, you know, the demons there, and they're different different levels of demons and different levels of angels and that's the picture that davy's painting the weirdest part about that is that he says i am an intelligence somewhat superior to you though there are millions of beings as much above me it's like what what the voice is telling davy is these angels these powers these supernatural things that exist you know s- somehow that those things are something more like him You know, and if somebody asks a religious person about an angel or a demon, it's like, look, that's not something like a human being. That's something infinitely distant from a human being. You know, an angel's thought of is like a perfect being, you know, and human beings are sinful and corrupt, you know. We're not anything like an angel. We're a mile away from an angel. But that's not what Davey's saying here. He's saying, apart from the intellect this creature is something very much like Davy. And I want to point that out because we're going to get more of it. And it's, it's weird. And then I'll bring your attention to this thing where he says, there is something I can teach you. He says, yield your mind wholly to the influence which I shall exert upon it, and you shall be undeceived. So I don't know how many people listening have had a mystic experience in particular, a psychedelically induced mystic experience. But if you've had one, one of the things you'll know, especially if you've had a, a, quote, bad trip, you'll know that resistance is futile, right? Like resistance is something that not only does it not help you, it not only does it not achieve what you want it to achieve while you're having that experience, which is something like slowing it down or, you know... <laughs> Holding it back so that it can be that you can it can become intelligible to you. You just want to hold it in your mind for just a minute. You don't want to be overwhelmed by it. And it's like, fuck you. And it will do what it wants. And what it wants is to overwhelm you. What it wants is for you to submit to it. And when you do, everything becomes easier. Everything becomes more beautiful. You know? So what he's asking Davy to do is to yield your mind wholly to the influence I shall exert upon it. And if you've, again, if you've had psychically, a psychedelically induced mystic experience, that is great advice. You must submit wholly to the influence of that experience. You must go with it. If you resist, you will regret it. Not only because it will be hard, but because you may miss out on whatever meaning could, be, could have been shown in that experience. But you were too busy resisting it, you know? I just just want to point out these concurrences with mystic experience, especially with psychedelic use, which is something Davey is going to, again, get into in his later years. He's no stranger to that while he's writing this. All right, I'll go on. He says, At this moment, the bright light disappeared. The voice ceased. I was in utter darkness and seemed to be carried rapidly upon a stream of air without any other sensation than of moving quickly through space. While I was still in motion, a dim and hazy light broke upon my sight, and gradually a country displayed itself, covered with forests and marshes. I saw wild animals grazing in large savannas, and carnivorous beasts occasionally disturbing and destroying them. I saw naked savages feeding upon fruit or devouring shellfish, or fighting for the remains of a whale, which had been thrown up upon the shore. Okay, so this is the next. This is the next visual that appears to Davy. So he's he's gone into this weird state of mind. He's seen the bright light. He's heard the voice. Now he sees this. Right, everything gets dark. He feels like he's floating or flying or moving, and again, that's. That's also something indicative of mystic experience, especially psychedelic mystic experience, a feeling of rising up out of your body, of flying, floating, or moving. Something I've said before, I think, is tied to this fractal imagery that you see in mystic experience. It's like uh, watching these, this sort of fractal geometry makes you feel like you're being sucked into it. It, it makes you feel like you're moving, and that's, that's what I think he's, he's trying to describe, And so the rest of it, again, is like a a vision of maybe mankind in this primitive, savage sort of state when he's living hand to mouth, maybe like a kind of picture of a caveman sort of scenario. And from there, I'm going to spare you the details, but from there, the the voice takes Davy on this journey through the development of human beings, through the development of civilization and culture. So the voice continues to basically narrate the past, which Davy sees steadily progressing over time. He sees ancient man struggle to survive, the birth of agriculture, the dawning of civilization and its progress to the present day. The voice emphasizes progress above all, which comes through intellect and its development. So the voice is really focusing on what intellect has allowed mankind to do from the rudest, savage days of living in caves with a loincloth on, all the way up through the modern, the modern era. And the voice is telling him, look what mankind can achieve through harnessing its intellect. And there's a focus on that. I also want to mention that, that Davy does refer to the voice eventually uh, as, as the genius and you might wonder why that is, but it's actually not uncommon. Uh, genius is a word that comes from the word genie, you know, like genie in a lamp. Um, it, it's, it comes from, from you know, Islam. Um, we're going to talk more about that, but but the idea that a genie is a spirit or an angel or something like that, um, that's kind of what that word means, genius, in this case. So I just wanted to, uh, to mention, if you hear the word genius, that that's what he's referring to. And uh, let me pick it up here. It goes like this. Uh, This is the genius speaking to Davy. Listen, whilst I reveal to you the mysteries of spiritual natures, but I fear that with the mortal veil of your senses surrounding you, these mysteries can never be made intelligible to your mind. Spiritual natures are eternal and indivisible, but their modes of being are as infinitely varied as the forms of matter. They have no relation to space, and in their transitions, no dependence on time. So they can pass from one part of the universe to another by laws entirely independent of their motion. The quantity of spiritual essences, like the quantity of atoms, are always the same. But their arrangements are infinitely diversified. They are, in fact, parts of the infinite mind, and are in a state of continually rising to a higher state of existence. Wow. Okay, so there's a lot there. But here you have the genius, the voice really starting to lay the wisdom on Davy. Remember, he was all high and mighty. He was all convinced that he was right and wise about you know, what happened to man, what brought, what brought them to the height of the Roman empire and what collapsed it and all that sort of thing. The genius is correcting him now. And he's telling him, listen, and I'll reveal to you the mysteries of spiritual natures. And I have to say that opening line reminds me of something from something that Jesus said in the book of Matthew. He says, I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Isn't that good? Jesus promised to utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And it's, again, the genius sounds something like that when he says, I will reveal to you the mysteries of spiritual natures. And then he says, look, I don't think you're going to understand what I'm telling you because you're mortal and, you know, some of this stuff is beyond you, you know. And then he goes on, he says, spiritual natures are eternal and indivisible. Okay, so that's interesting. It's like when he says spiritual natures, he's talking about something something beyond the physical, something supernatural, you know, something spiritual. It's not exactly clear what he means by that. But it reminds me of things that I've heard before. It reminds me of Plato's forms, of uh, Jung's images or archetypes. It reminds me of Whitehead's eternal objects. You know, other philosophers have talked about things like this, things that they say exist someplace some place that's not the physical world, it's some place that's not being, but some place nonetheless that they are real, that they exist in some supernatural place, in some unknown part of ourselves, you know, what Jung calls the unconscious, some part of ourselves we don't have access to, but real nonetheless, and they're eternal, and they're indivisible, they're not made of smaller things, and they don't die, they're not born. There's something like God, or like the nature of God, And it's really hard to understand, but the genius is telling Davy that those things exist and that they're as infinitely varied as matter. Another thing he he says is that these spiritual natures are eternal, but that their modes of being are infinite. And, And that reminds me of Spinoza, the philosopher Spinoza, who believed God was infinite, that God was one thing, you know, infinite, eternal, indivisible, but that he was manifest with infinite attributes and infinite modes of those attributes. So you have one thing that is manifest in an infinite number of ways. And this is very much like what Davy's saying here or what the genius is telling Davy about these spiritual natures. And he says that they have no relation to space or time, So they're outside of the physical world in a very meaningful way. Now, anybody who's ever had a mystic experience, uh, in particular a psychedelic mystic experience, will know that space and time is a little bit, a lot of bit, I should say, questionable in those experiences. They don't have the same permanence in a mystic experience as they do in your day-to-day reality. They do seem far more illusory. They do seem far more suspect than they do in waking time when you feel like they're fundamental. space and time are the most fundamental things. The other thing I want to mention to you um you can see that you know Davy was a scientist and a very smart scientist, and so you'll see references to things like he just like he just did here where he said that they can pass from one part of the universe to, the, to, the, to another as if by laws apart from motion. So he has an understanding of the laws of motion. Then um, he also t- talks about atoms, and he said that these spiritual essences are as numerous as atoms, but that that number is always the same. What does he mean by that? He's referring to conservation of energy. right? He's, re- he's referring to Newton. He's saying just like, just like mass and energy can't be created or destroyed, but is always the same. These spiritual essences are like that. They're just like that. And just like and just like um, matter and, and energy, what makes a difference with spiritual essences is their arrangement. It's the pattern of how they're put together. That's what makes a difference. That's what makes potassium, potassium, and <laughs> sodium, sodium, a different arrangement of atoms. And he's making that same analogy with these spiritual essences, which he says, get this, are in fact... Part of the infinite mind. What is the infinite mind? So now you've got this idea of consciousness and God, really. Those two notions wrapped up in this phrase, infinite mind. And you start to see this sort of panpsychist thing emerging, which is tremendous. And then the last bit here, which is important for Davy, where he says that... They're always in a constant state of development. They're always getting more, more perfect, more complicated, these spiritual essences. And I get, you know, I get the image of atoms organizing and reorganizing in a constant state of flux. I get that reality is something like that. But at each moment, progressing to more sophisticated and powerful forms forever, like an endless process of perfection, not unlike the alchemical pursuit, you know, the turning lead into gold, trying to perfect matter. This is what the genius is suggesting happens with these spiritual, um, with these spiritual essences. That they're constantly becoming, progressing, becoming more perfect. You know, and that's really important to him actually. I mean, I guess it's no surprise why. I mean, you look at something like biological evolution and you get the perception that creatures are evolving towards more sophistication and maybe you could say greater degrees of perfection. So there's something about nature that does seem to be doing that. And I think that's what Davy's latching on to. All right, so the genius continues. He says, were it permitted me to extend your vision to the fates of individual existences, I could show you the same spirit in the form of Socrates, Tsar Peter, Newton, now in a higher state of planetary existence, drinking intellectual light and approaching nearer to the infinite and divine mind. But prepare your mind and you shall see at least a glimpse of those states which the beings that have belonged to the earth enjoy after death, in their transition to more exalted natures. Okay, so there's two really interesting things here. The last bit you probably noticed, because we just talked about this. We just talked about Davy's notion, or at least this, the genius telling Davy, that these spiritual essences are in a state of progress, a state of perfection, where they're constantly changing and, and becoming towards some goal. Maybe infinite, but towards some, some goal. And here he says, "Here he says, um, prepare your mind, and you shall catch a glimpse of those states which the beings that have belonged to the earth enjoy after the after death in their transition to more exalted natures." What he's saying here is that human beings who die on Earth, or any creature who dies on Earth, is part of this process of of perfection, of pro- of progress that will be going moving on potentially to higher, more exalted natures. And so you get this, you get this picture of reincarnation, something like that, that starts to come up. It's like when somebody dies on earth, their their spirit, for lack of a better word, has the ability to transition and transform into something greater and take one next step in that progress. But what Davy does, and I should say the genius speaking to Davy, what, what he does is something strange, you know. He says, I'm trying to find, oh, he says a higher state of planetary existence. That's what he says somebody who dies is moving to. He doesn't say they're moving to heaven or hell or shoal or the land of the dead or Valhalla. He doesn't say any of that. He says they move on to a, a new state, a higher state of planetary existence. So to Davy, this this afterlife is not it's not all in a you know a a supernatural place, but this reincarnation exists in the here and now in the physical world on some other planet. Okay, so. Now we're getting into some sci-fi shit. Now we're getting into this interpretation of mystic experience that is very, very strange to me. I mean, I wish I could ask Davey questions about this, but but we're going to get there, so I'll slow down a bit. It's like the process of life and of dying are necessary to transform into higher states of being. Now, in religious language, we call that heaven or the afterlife or nirvana or something like that, but Devi's not saying that. He's saying that 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 exists on some other planet. The other interesting thing he says here is in the very first sentence when he says if it were permitted for for the spirit to show Devi individuals, right, If if it were permitted for him to show Devi individual spirits, he said, I could show you the same spirit in the form of Socrates Tsar Peter, or Newton. So the same spirit, he says, are Socrates, Tsar Peter, and Newton. And what you have here is an admission that the thing, uh, you want you want to call it sentience or soul or spirit or something, but whatever it is that made Socrates, Socrates, that's the same thing that made Tsar Peter, Tsar Peter, the same thing that made Newton, Newton, that he, he's saying that they were the same spirit. And there's a, there's a vision of unity there. There's something that resonates from mystic experience there. That all, all souls are one soul. Something like that. And then he says this things like, if I could show you them where they exist now that they're dead, they're in some higher state of being on some other planet, drinking intellectual light and approaching nearer the divine mind. Fuck, man. What does it mean drinking divine li- or intellectual light? I mean, drinking intellect obviously has some meaning of becoming more intellectual, you know, uh, becoming superior intellectual, intellectually, just like the spirit said earlier when he was introducing himself to Davy he said, I'm something, something like you, but more, but, uh, you know, a higher intellectual version. So when you move on to the next world, you have the ability to drink intellectual light and become greater in your intellect to be to transform somehow in an important way to become greater and higher. But why light? Why drink light? And I love that because it's symbolic, you know. Light is symbolic of consciousness. It's, it's the thing that comes from the sun that rules the, the cosmos, the thing that we see by, that makes our perceptions possible, the thing that warms us and, grow, and allows the crops to grow so we can continue to live. Light has some strong symbolic associations, and many of them have to do with, with God. You know, they have to do with the heavens, the stars, you know, g- gods, the afterlife, things like that. There's all kinds of religious and mythological connections to the light. All right, I'll go on here. It says, the voice ceased and I appeared in a dark, deep cave. From above, a bright and rosy light broke in. I seemed possessed at this moment of a new sense and felt that the light brought with it a a genial warmth. My limbs had a new lightness given to them. So that I seemed to rise from the earth, and gradually mounted into the bright luminous air, leaving behind the dark cavern. Goes on. Language is inadequate to describe what I felt in rising continually upwards. All right. So I'll stop for a second just to say. So now he's having this this next transitionary period. He's going from one vision to another. He's going from one, you know, reality to another. And he says he, he doesn't have the language to describe it. And that, I want to mention, is a telltale sign of mystic experience. There's a word for it. It's called noetic. This is what people say about mystic experience. It's ineffable. It's it's hard to put words to or impossible to put words to. And this is exactly what Davy is saying. So was this a psychedelic experience we're, we're hearing about? I mean, the evidence is stacking up in that direction. All right, he says, I had not, as is the case with dreams of this kind, imagined to myself wings, but I rose gradually and securely as if I were myself a part of the ascending column of light. By degrees, this luminous atmosphere, which was diffused over the whole of space, became more circumscribed and extended only to a limited spot around me. Okay, so that's interesting. So you remember he saw this bright light and he felt like he was flying. And what he's saying here is he felt like he was the light. It wasn't that he was flying in it. He said he became the column of light. And then the light sort of focuses on him. And this is where we are. He says, I saw through it the bright blue sky, the moon and stars, and I passed by them as if if it were in my power to touch them. I beheld Jupiter and Saturn as they appear through our best telescopes, but still more magnified. It seemed as if I was on the verge of the solar system, and my moving sphere of light now appeared to pause. I again heard the voice of the genius, which said, You are now on the verge of your own system. Will you go further or return to the Earth? Jesus, what a paragraph. So... So now he's been sucked up into the cosmos. He said he was so close to the moon, he felt like he could touch him. And he finds himself zooming past Jupiter and Saturn, on, like, seemingly on a beam of light. And he stops, he says he can see Jupiter and Saturn better than we can from our best telescopes. He was right there, floating in space, right there looking at these great planets far off in the distance, you know? And he heard the voice say, do you want to go farther so i just have to say if you've ever had a mystic experience in particular psychedelically derived one there's a moment like that where when you start when you start to come out of an experience or maybe after you've ingested some chemical and you and you're not sure the dosage was right or something there is a moment where you do ask yourself will you go further you know and part of you wants to, and part of you is scared to, and that's, at least for me, it's always the case. And I just find it interesting that the genius is saying that to him. "Do you want to go deeper, Davy? Do you want to go further? Do you want to go deeper into the mystery? I'll show you. And he's got to be scared, you know?" And he replies like this, he says, "I have left an abode which is damp, dreary, dark and cold. I am now in a place where all is life, light and enjoyment." Show me, at least before I return, the glimpse which you promised me. So Davy says, yes, let's go farther, you know. All right, so now we go back to the genius who says, there are creatures far superior to any idea your imagination can form. And that part of the system now before you, comprehending Saturn, his moons and rings, I will carry you to the verge of the immense atmosphere of this planet, and that space you will see sufficient to wonder at all right so what the genius has told davy who's floating in a light in a light orb in, in front of saturn you know he says that there are creatures superior intellectually superior to davy that exist in saturn so that's interesting all right so let me just let me just move on he says Davy says, I was again in motion and again almost as suddenly at rest. So you can imagine he's just like zoomed down into the atmosphere of, uh, of uh, Saturn from, from space. He says, I saw below me a surface, something like that of an immense glacier, which appeared as if formed of glass, and from which were suspended rounded forms of various sizes. From masses of bright blue ice, streams of the richest rose color burst forth, forming seas of the same color. Looking through the atmosphere, I saw brilliant clouds of azure that reflected the light of the sun. I saw moving on the surface below me, forms of which I find impossible to describe. They had systems for locomotion similar to those of the seahorse, but I saw with great surprise that they moved from place to place By six extremely thin membranes, which they used as wings. Their colors were varied and beautiful. I saw numerous convolutions of tubes, more analogous to the trunk of an elephant than to anything else I can imagine, occupying what I supposed to be the upper parts of the body. And my feeling of astonishment almost became one of disgust. It was with terror that I saw one of them mounting upwards. Alright, so that paragraph alone was enough to blow the top off of my off of my head. It's one thing for Davey to talk about seeing a bright light, becoming disembodied, feeling like he's floating, feeling like he's hearing disembodied voices. That's one thing. It's all very spiritual. It's all very dreamlike. It's all very fine and good as far as I'm concerned. You know, interpret it as you will. But this is not... This is not that. This is not that. This is Davy saying that the spirits more advanced than you, the spirits of greater intellect, the beings that, let's say, human beings can become after they die, if, they're, you know, if the right circumstances are met, they exist on Saturn. Here and now, they exist in a, in, a, in a physical form, in a physical realm. Not all that far from us. We can look up in a telescope and see the planet they live on. And What Davy's done is talked about the way the planet looks when you move through the atmosphere. You know the opaque blue clouds, the the ice and the columns and all the stuff that you would see on the on the surface of the planet. Which, by the way, I don't think we have any idea or are able to verify that with our satellites and so forth. And Davy's telling us that that's what you'll find if you go there. But not just that, man. Davy says he can see how they get around on the planet. They look like seahorses, you know, swimming around this atmosphere. And they're doing that with these membranes that look like wings that are, that are, you know, undulating and moving like you can imagine some kind of microscopic creature might do in your body, you know, in your blood or something. And he's talking about how beautiful they are and how varied they are. And, and these tubes that, that, that transform, like, he says that they're like the trunk of an elephant and all of this imagery you know the the moving the tubes the the uh the flapping wings the shapes the colors all of that stuff is reminiscent of psychedelic experience those are the kind of things you see let's say in a DMT trip and then and then this really interesting part at the end which i think is so authentic and honest is that he says while he's seeing this experience of these creatures on saturn that he becomes disgusted by it, like seeing something so different from itself that he, you have to imagine that your disgust instinct would kick in. You know, it's like, you know, seeing an alien or seeing, seeing a monster of some kind. The part of you would be disgusted by it, by its difference from you. And he admits to that. And then he admits to fear and seeing it because he says one of them starts moving towards him he says, it was with terror that I saw one of them mounting upwards. You know, if you have mystic experience, if you have a visionary psychedelic experience of a deep type, you will feel these things. You will feel emotion, disgust, and fear, absolutely. Fear above all. And I just want to point out that Davy includes that in his tale here. Now we go back to the genius. He says, I know what your feelings are. You want analogies to comprehend the scene before you. You were in the same state in which a fly would, whose microscopic eye was changed for that of a man, and you were wholly unable to associate what you now see with your former knowledge. But those beings who are before you have a sphere of sensibility far superior to that of the inhabitants of your earth. Each of those tubes, which appeared like the trunk of an elephant, is an organ of peculiar motion or sensation. They have many modes of perception of which you are wholly ignorant, at the same time that their sphere of vision is infinitely more extended than yours, and their organs of touch far more perfect. So the genius steps in to explain part of what he's seeing, I mean, how interesting is this where he says, look, the situation you're in right now, you only have references to the things on earth, the things that you're familiar with. Now, I've put you in a place where nothing, where you can't make any analogies from what you know. So everything is completely meaningless and everything is completely meaningful. What you're looking at is like chaos. And he says, the state that you're in now is like the state a fly would be in. If you just swapped a fly's eyes out for human eyes, the fly wouldn't have any idea what it was seeing, even though it, it was exactly what it was seeing with, with its own eyes a moment ago. That's the level of confusion and disorientation that, that Davy is in. You know, like he's been given another creature's eyes to see this reality that he cannot understand. Now, is that a fair description of a psychedelic experience? I think so. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he says a bunch of interesting stuff about the creatures that live on Saturn. He says that they're far superior to Devi in intellect. That their sense abilities are far more advanced than a human being. He says they have many modes of perception of perception that you can't even understand. You know, you can think about like you could think about like um, uh, echolocation or something. It's hard to understand that because we don't have that sense. Imagine creatures that have many, many senses like that, that we cannot understand. That's what these creatures are like. So their sphere of vision is infinitely more extended than yours. Their organs of touch are far more perfect. What is So what is he describing with these aliens on, on Saturn? He's describing creatures that are more fully sentient. They're more fully conscious than a human being. Why? because they can see more, feel more, taste more, because they they can experience more of what reality is than we can. And that's what makes them intellectually superior to us. That's interesting. All right, the genie goes on. He says, They have modified and applied the material world in a manner analogous to man, But with far superior powers, they have gained superior results. They have determined the laws of the solar system with far more accuracy than you could possibly conceive. Their sources of pleasure are of the highest intellectual nature, with the magnificent spectacle of their own rings and moons revolving around them, with the various combinations required to understand and predict the relations of these wonderful phenomena. Their minds are an unceasing activity. And this activity is a perpetual source of enjoyment. Okay, so again, we knew already that these creatures had, were, were way more conscious than we are. He's saying that with that comes far superior knowledge, that they know all the laws of the solar system and you know, how everything operates to, to a much finer degree than we can here on Earth. And as a result, he's like, what they live for, What their pleasure is, what they're driven towards is just intellectual enjoyment, just knowledge, just observing and understanding all of the fascination and and complexity around them, you know, something like that. And he goes on, he says, your view of the solar system is bounded by Uranus. It just simply meant that in the 1800s, that's as far as we could see. You couldn't see beyond Uranus. So he says, your view of the solar system is bounded by Uranus these beings catch a sight of planets belonging to another system. And even the phenomena presented by another sun. So these creatures living on Saturn can see far further than we can to other other star systems, okay? He says, those comets of which your astronomical history is so imperfect are to them perfectly familiar and are shown with as much accurateness as those of Jupiter and Venus in your almanacs. The stars nearest them are as well understood as their own sun, and they possess a magnificent history of the changes taking place in the heavens, and their astronomical records embrace a period a hundred times as long as man's. They have no war, and the objects of their ambition are entirely of intellectual greatness. Those columnar masses, which seem to you as if arising out of a mass of ice below, are the results of art and processes are going on in them connected with the formation of their food. Those azure clouds you saw a few minutes ago are places in which they move through different regions of their atmosphere. So you see the level of detail that the genius is telling Davy about these creatures on on Saturn and what their world is like? It's like those giant masses of ice that you saw. No, those are actually works of art. And within them, they produce their food. I mean, what in the hell? It's like the kind of thing that you would see in sci-fi. It reminds me of something that would, that would uh, come out of like L. Ron Hubbard or something. It's amazing. I can't. I just, like the amount of imagination that's required to make up that level of detail is fascinating. The kind of thing that you would need to be artistically inclined to do, you know, the kind of mind an artist is, not the kind of mind a scientist is generally. And Davy is a scientist, so that's what I'm asking myself here: is like, is this is this level of detail? Is it you know is it possible that that's just made up? Is it possible that this is an actual vision of what's really going on there? And one day might we might we land our first uh, rover on on Saturn and find them? You know, it's just un, it's just fascinating to to contemplate, you know? All right, then he says this. The genius says this. On the verge of the visible horizon, which we perceive around us, you may see in the east a very dark spot or shadow in which the light of the sun seems entirely absorbed. This is the border of an immense mass, analogous to your ocean, but unlike your sea, it is inhabited by a race of beings, possessed of an extensive range of sensations, and endowed with extraordinary power. All right, so I don't know if you caught this, but this is just another bit of the genius explaining what's out there in the, in the cosmos, in the far-flung reaches of the cosmos. He's explaining to Davy what's there, and remember... He said, your view of the solar system is bounded by Uranus. So what he's, what he's telling us here is something that is beyond Uranus. And what the genius tells Davy is out there, beyond Uranus, somewhere in the, in the depths of space, is a very dark spot, which the light of the sun seems entirely absorbed. He calls it an immense mass analogous to your ocean. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like a black hole. It sounds like Davy is describing a black hole, a mass like an ocean in the middle of space where all light gets absorbed. Is the hair standing up on your arms? Because it's standing up on mine. Remember, this is sometime prior to 1829 when this vision happened to Davy. And the genius showed Davy outer space in person and one of the things he showed him is a very dark spot in the middle of space where all of the sun's light is absorbed. That's a black hole. That's a black hole, you guys. Sometime prior to 1829, Davy knew that. The first black hole that was ever observed was in 1971 Cygnus X1, the first black hole ever identified in 1971. Is it possible that the the genius showed Davy a black hole in 1829 or before? Sometime before? Jesus, that is amazing. And if that doesn't get your goat, I don't know what will. But what's even weirder is the fact that we don't know what goes on in a black hole. We've got all sorts of ideas about what might be, but we don't know. What we do know is that Sunlight cannot escape. It is entirely absorbed by a black hole, confirming what Davy's genius told us. So it makes you wonder, what about the rest of what the genius has told you? That beings exist in the black hole, endowed with extraordinary power. (laughs) Fuck, man, I don't know. It's amazing. All right, so then the genius says... I could transport you to the different planets and show you in each peculiar beings bearing analogies to each other, but yet all different in power and essence. He says, in Jupiter, you will see creatures similar to those in Saturn, but with different powers of locomotion. In Mars and Venus, you will find races of created forms more analogous to those belonging to the Earth. Then he says, but in every part of the planetary system, you will find one character peculiar to all intellectual natures, a sense of receiving impressions from light. It says the spiritual natures that pass from system to system in progress towards power and knowledge preserve this one invariable character and their intellectual life depends upon the influence of light. Oh, Jesus. Okay, so... So light comes back into into focus, and I think it's interesting. So he basically just says, look, we've seen these creatures on Saturn. I could take you to Jupiter and Mars and Venus and show you others. But what's important is that regardless of where we go, every being has something in common. The sense of receiving impressions from light. Then he says, the spiritual nature's progress from one system to another, so from one planet or solar system to another, higher and higher they go, right? And that depends on the influence of light. That's amazing. So this process of perfection and progress this that's happening, you know, to our spiritual natures, that that's something that depends on light. Now, light is something that exists in the physical world, in the here and now, and yet it's it's absolutely critical to the process of the development of, a, of spirit and these spiritual natures. Like, what? You see how Devi is bringing all of this stuff down to earth. And I say that, but what I mean is down into the physical and material and down into the here and now. It's so easy and mystic experience to float off into this abstract spiritual place where, where you know... F- the physical world be damned. All the important stuff happens in the world of forms out there in this in this place that that is you know uh, unavailable to us except through altered states of consciousness. And that's where we want to go back. That's where we want to explore. That's what a psychonaut does: we go off into the unknown and find that out. And uh, Davy Davy won't allow himself to go there. He's bringing everything back to the here and now, and I find that really significant. And this bit about light, and I just want to say, and I've, I did a whole episode on this, so I won't, I won't rehash it too much. But the significance of light in religion and mythology is is always sort of at the forefront. You know, in the Bible, for instance, "Let there be light." You know, that's one of the first utterances from God in the creation. You know, the Gnostic Christians, those early Christian groups, um, said things like. When, uh, the, Jesus told the, told the, the, the Gnostics in the, some of those Gnostic scriptures that when the authorities come after them and ask them, who do you say you are? That the Gnostics are supposed to say, we are those that came from the light, those that the light sent, you know? What does that mean? It's something like this. It's something like what the genius is telling Davy. And that's not to mention the importance of light in understanding physics, you know? The speed of light. It's like the, the upper boundary of what's possible. Nothing can move faster than the speed of light. It's the boundary to, to the physical world. And if you, and if you move as fast as, this, as the speed of light, time goes away. Time doesn't exist anymore. You know, what could be more fundamental than, than, than light? And we see that, you know, coming out of the mouth of the genius into Davy's ear. All he says, the universe is everywhere full of life, but the modes of this life are infinitely diversified, and yet every form of it must be enjoyed and known by every spiritual nature before the consummation of all things. So this whole bit about the universe is everywhere full of life, I don't know how to take that any other way than as panpsychism, you know? Everything is sentient, everything is alive, you know, something like that. Then the, gen- the genie says, you have seen the comet moving with its immense train of light through the sky. This likewise has living beings, and their existence derives its enjoyment from the diversity of circumstances to which they are exposed. Passing as it were through the infinity of space, they are continually gratified by the sight of new systems and worlds. And you can imagine the unbounded nature of the circle of their knowledge My power extends so far as to afford you a glimpse of the nature of a cometary world. So that's a long-winded way of saying that even comets, the genius is telling him, even these comets and asteroids and meteors out there, even those things are sentient. They're full of life. And he can even show Davy what they're like. So that's what we're going to do next. Davy says... I was again in rapid motion, again passing with the utmost velocity through the sky, and I saw Jupiter and his satellites, and Saturn and his rings behind me, and before me the sun, no longer appearing as through a blue mist, but in a bright and unsupportable splendor, towards which I seemed moving with the utmost velocity. In a limited sphere of vision, I saw moving around me globes which appeared composed of different kinds of flame, and of different colors. In some of these globes, I recognized figures which put me in mind of the human countenance, but the resemblance was so awful and unnatural that I endeavored to withdraw my view from them. All right, so basically, this is Davy being pulled, you know, Impossibly fast through space and time from Saturn all the way through to one of these comets, and what's happened is he's going towards the sun, and he's seeing these like glowing orbs of light with, with like these grotesque faces in them or likenesses of human beings, and he's like completely terrified by what it is he's seeing. He calls them awful and unnatural, and the genius says, "You are now in a cometary system; those globes of light surrounding you." Are material forms, such as in one of your systems of religious faith, have been attributed to to seraphs. So I'll just stop there. So in this commentary world, these orbs of light, he's saying that that they're alive, that they're conscious. But he calls them material forms. And that's another way of bringing them down to earth. Making these supernatural spiritual beings here and now. And part of the cosmos, you know. Not separate in some other realm, but here and now. And that's, that's different for Davy than anybody else I've read. And then he makes a connection between the way these orbs of light look and the way the Bible talks about the seraphim, the angels, he calls them seraphs. He says, they live in that element, which to you would be destruction. That means fire. You know, they communicate by powers, which would convert your frame into ashes. They are now in the height of their enjoyment being about to enter the blaze of the solar atmosphere. So these comets are something that's out there experiencing the things in space that nothing else gets to experience. They get to see, they get to pass by, you know, new planetary systems and new stars. They get to experience what it feels like to break through the solar atmosphere. They're like consciousness out there in the far-flung realms of, of the black, you know? And... Um, and again, he, he explains them as just like any other, uh, any of these other alien creatures um, that they live in, in, in a, uh, an atmosphere that would destroy a human being. They, they communica- communicate by powers that would convert a human being into ashes. And it reminds you of like, you know, like the Ark of the Covenant, the story of the Ark of the Covenant where, uh, where uh, you know, I don't remember, somebody tries to open it or something and, uh, uh, you know, gets reduced to ashes or destroyed or, or um, uh, you know, something like that. Um, it re- kind of reminds you of making eye contact with Medusa and turning into stone, you know, something like that. There's mythological, um, parallels. All right. And then, uh, the genie says, you ask me if they have any knowledge of their transitions. Okay. So he's basically, remember, he's saying that when, when creatures die, let's say on the earth, that they have the ability to move to some higher form of existence on some other planet or on a comet or in a black hole or whatever it is. And Davy asks the genius, do they have any knowledge of their prior lives? And to that, the the genie responds, tell me of your own recollections in the womb of your mother, and I will answer you. (laughs) Isn't that funny? He said, no, they don't. Do Do you? He says, it is the law of divine wisdom that no spirit carries with it into another state any mental qualities except those connected with its new wants or enjoyments. So he's basically giving an, an explanation for why, in a system of sort of cosmic reincarnation, like he's describing, souls don't remember their past lives. It may also be why dreams and psychedelic insights fade so quickly upon waking, you know? It's like there's a divine law that says you can't carry that knowledge with you into, into the, you know, the next, the next phase of your existence, It's interesting. Then he he says this, even the butterfly does not transport with it into the air the organs or appetites of the crawling worm from which it sprung. It's beautiful. He says, there is, however, one passion which the monad or spiritual essence carries with it into all its stages of being and which is continually exalted. The love of knowledge, which is the love of God. Isn't that interesting? Now I say knowledge comes from conscious experience. You know knowledge is something gained from experience. So the love of God is the love of experience or the experience that we are. It's the love of sentience for lack of a better word. and that's what I think God is personally. So I think this is an interesting quote. He says, "Even in the imperfect life that belongs to the earth, This passion exists in a considerable degree, increasing even with age, outlives the corporeal faculties, and at the moment of death is felt by the conscious being, and its future destinies depend upon the manner in which it has exercised and exalted. So the love of God, he's saying that the love of knowledge or the love of God, that's something that's going to determine how you move on In your reincarnation, what planet do you live on? Where are you re-manifest? That kind of thing. Um, It's based upon how well you've loved God, whatever that means, you know? Then he says, when it has been misapplied, the being is degraded. It sinks in the scale of existence and still belongs to the earth or an inferior system till its errors are corrected by painful discipline. When, on the contrary, the love of intellectual power has been exercised in discovering and contemplating the created forms, in admiring the laws of the eternal intelligence, it rises to a higher planetary world. All right, so the Buddhist symbolism here is everywhere. And I don't know how studied Sir Humphrey Davy was in Buddhism or Hinduism, but this reincarnation business and karma business is all over this you know if it's like if you have bad karma then when you die you're you, you may be reborn on the earth or as something inferior and a buddhist might say that you might be reborn as a as a bug or as a beast of burden or as a demon right and all of those things are possible davy wouldn't say that but he might say well you might get reborn on on, on mercury where you know the, those beings are less and less sophisticated than the ones on earth you see the difference you know it's a strange difference Okay, he says, your vision must end. I cannot show you the beings of the system to which I myself belong, that of the sun. Your organs would perish before our brightness. Okay, so I want to mention now the genius who's been guiding Davy through this whole thing. When he brings the vision to an end, he says, I can't show you my world. Because my world is the sun. And remember, the ge- the genius or the genie, in Islam, they're they're... They're angels and they're made of fire. You know, when God created man in in Islam, he created them from clay, just like you see in the Bible. But when man created or when God created the angels, he made them from fire. And I think that's interesting. You know, the genius is telling Davy that I can't I can't show you the world I come from, the sun, because you would burn up before our brightness. And again, the genie, according to mythology, Mm -hmm. is made of fire. So that's interesting. Make of that what you will. All right, we're getting there, guys. He says, "We are likewise in progression, but we see and know something of the planet of the plans of infinite wisdom. We feel the personal presence of that supreme deity which you only imagine." All right, so now he's the genie is describing to Davy what it's like to be a genie what it's like to be such a much more highly um, sophisticated intelligence than a human being. He says, we feel the personal presence of God. That which you only imagine, we feel it. So that's interesting. It's also something that resonates from mystic experience. You absolutely feel it. You feel yourself becoming one with the universe. You feel yourself becoming God. And it is a feeling. It's knowledge through being God. You know, he says, um, and our greatness del- delight results from the conviction that we are lights kindled by His light, and that we belong to His substance. And remember, the Gnostics say we came from the light. Isn't that interesting? And the Bible says, you know, uh, let there be light. That was the first act of creation. That's where all things come from. From that, from those beginnings. He says, to obey, to love, to wonder and adore, form our relations to the infinite intelligence. We feel his laws govern all things from the most glorious to the meanest spark of life animating an atom. We know all things begin and end in his everlasting essence, the cause of causes, the power of powers. Okay, so there is this kind of panpsychist, you know, final blow where He says that we feel this light of, of God. We feel this sentience in all things, even the meanest spark of life animating an atom. So there's life sentience within an atom? That's panpsychism. That's what that is. Amazing. And that, and that thing that's, that's animating the atom, what is that thing? Davy says it's the cause of causes, the power of powers. That's God, you guys. God animates the atom. God animates the human being. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means, but I'll leave that I'll leave it up to you. All right, it says the voice ceased. It appeared as if I had fallen suddenly upon the earth, and I heard my name loudly called. The voice was not of my guide; before me was my servant. He told me he had been searching in vain amongst the ruins that the carriage had been waiting for me above an hour. Okay, so that brings us out of the vision. Brings us out of Davy's vision. What did you think of that? The man's dying words, that he were so important, he had he had to tell the world before it was too late. And what did he tell us? He told us. He told us that when we die, we're reborn, and that that process can be. An enhancement, or it can be a decline. And that all depends on whether we've figured out the meaning of life, and it has something to do with loving God. And if we do a good job, we might end up with a higher degree of intellect and existing more fully conscious, closer to God on some other planet, on some comet or in a black hole in the middle of space somewhere. And that's somehow better than the reality we have now. And there is no heaven and there is no hell and there is no, no afterlife, but a, but a, um, but a, um, a continuity of energy and, and sentience that transforms and moves within the cosmos from planet to planet in this, in this progress uh, process of progress or perfection, something like that. I mean, unbelievable. Amazing. And all of that is rooted in the here and now. It's like the psychedelic experience is not meant to make you live in dreams and fantasies. It's make you meant... To see those fantasies manifest all around you in the here and now, something like that, amazing. And from Humphrey, from Sir Humphrey Davy, no less. Does that make you take it more seriously? This craziness. I hope so. And that brings me to my conclusion, which goes something like this: Davy's vision was a revelation a revelation imparting several deeply hidden truths, which may be easily overlooked among all the amazing sci-fi imagery. Firstly, we see the sentience extends throughout the cosmos into the very smallest of things and the very largest. In every niche and crevice, inside every quantum particle, and in every planet, star, and speck of dust. Secondly, that this sentience or life is in a perpetual state of transformation and perfection, moving forever closer and further away from some ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is the divine mind, the source of all sentience and of all material reality. And that brings us to the third revelation, that there is a divine mind, a source from which all things move. Davy calls the divine mind the cause of causes, like God itself. But it's also called the monad, the one thing. The genius told Davy that the spiritual essence within all things is a monad. It's a unified oneness. Wow! Davy gives us all the greatest mystical truths, the same utterances we hear from Spinoza, from Heraclitus, from from Vedanta, and from all of historical shamans and psychonauts. But why should Devi's mystic experience present these revelations in such a material way, in such a cosmically physical way? Where religious revelation and its mythological counterparts show the revelation as something more abstract, something distinctly spiritual, Devi sees it in the here and now, in the expanse of outer space. Davy didn't see angels or demons. He didn't visit the realm of the gods, the underworld, heaven or hell. Instead, Davy saw Jupiter and its many moons, Saturn and its glorious rings, and even a black hole. But why and how strange If you came to believe that a spiritual unity was responsible for material reality and the force that fills and animates it, would you be persuaded to see it manifest all around you? In the earth, the planets? Or would you do what all the sages have done before you and place all this magic in an abstract realm infinitely distant and different from ours? Would you imagine a world of forms as Plato did? A dream time as the Aboriginal Australians would say, a kingdom of God. Odds are, you probably would. But Davy, Davy did not. He saw it in matter and energy, in space and time, within reality itself. He saw it in beings and atoms and stars. Davy went a step beyond the sages, a step beyond the abstract and unconscious. Davy did what Spinoza did. He brought the spiritual dimension of reality right down to earth, in a manner of speaking. He brought it into union with the physical material dimension. Davy united the noumena with the phenomena, the spiritual world with the material one. He united God with being itself. And in so doing, he put it in its proper place. You see, the brilliance of Davy's vision, that which makes it authentically mystical, is its absolute insistence that the spiritual essence, which flows behind and through all things, is all things. It can be encountered, experienced, and loved directly. There is no veil obstructing our view of it, no boundaries keeping us from embracing it. Because this is the case, Davy warns, we must remember what can be embraced directly can be betrayed directly. We can experience and influence the very source of existence because we are that source. But this is not without danger. With such power, we can sabotage our striving as easily as we can advance it. And as Davy's guide showed him those fantastic beings, each greater and more fully conscious than himself, which dwell in the outer planets and beyond, the implication of ascension is confronted with its opposite. If sentience can be purified, enhanced, and assume a greater reality with each lifetime, it can also degrade and fall. Devi presents this much like the Hindu or Buddhist notion of reincarnation, or the alchemical notion of transmutation. It is not deterministic, not an inevitability, but rather a possibility, an ever-present potentiality. We live and live and live again, transforming as we go, aiming upward and striving towards the light. What are we doing Will we ever succeed? Is there even an end to such a thing? Perhaps not. But at least we have a goal for our striving, if we can but recognize it. Just as we look to the heavens and bear witness to the sun, we look within and bear witness to the spiritual essence, the divine mind. This is where we set our aim. This is where we direct our striving.
0: see what I did there let's find out together in the next episode